You're listening to the North American Francophone Podcast, hosted in English by Claire-Marie Brisson and proudly recorded in Charlottesville, Virginia. Today we have uh, Patrick Lacroix joining us. He's currently a professor at Acadia University and Mount St. Vincent in Nova Scotia. And Dr. Lacroix is a leading scholar of Franco-American history. Thank you so much for joining us on the North American Francophone Podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, you know, could you tell us a bit of how you came up with the idea to create the series, Those Other Franco-Americans, that you published to query the past, your site? Yeah, so it's really interesting how initially when I was at UNH, the University of New Hampshire, I really wanted to do something that would connect Quebec and my experience in New England. Um, And so my point of entry into Franco-American history and Franco-American studies came through Fall River, Massachusetts, which at one point was the third largest French-speaking city in North America uh, after Montreal and Quebec City. So this was a major industrial hub in New England and a major site of Franco-American life and culture and faith and so forth. But as I kept pushing into the field, I realized that really there are a lot of stories that haven't made it into the mainstream kind of academic or scholarly conversation. So I started wondering about some of these farmers, French Canadian farmers in Northern Vermont and lumberjacks in Maine and New York and domestic servants all over New England whose stories is often known at a local level, but not really in, you know, it doesn't really appear in surveys and a lot of major books on the subject. So I decided to explore that a little bit more Um, and to build on the work of really amazing scholars um, who I think haven't really gotten full credit, perhaps, for their work. People like Peter Wolfson, who was for a long time at UVM. Um, Luckily, Jason Newton has been doing great work with woodworkers, French-Canadian woodworkers, lumberjacks, and so forth. Susan Ouellette, for instance, has a great article on Plattsburgh, New York, which is often overlooked as a French-Canadian center and a lot of other great local archivists and historians who've done a lot of great work, but we don't really have a synthesis of those works. So I figured, you know, I might as well, I have time, I might as well try my luck and try to contribute to this really interesting field that I think can really enrich and complicate what we think we know about Franco-American history. Absolutely, and I think the work you're doing is is so important. Um, you know, why do you think that these areas are so underrepresented at this point? I think there are a lot of factors at work, and I think part of it is that so many of the elites who created the Franco-American story in the first place, from Catholic priests to the editors of French language newspapers to the leaders of the Société Saint-Jean-Baptiste, and some of these other organizations were for the most part located in a handful of cities. You know, we might think of Woonsocket, Fall River, um, Lowell, Massachusetts, Manchester, Lewiston. And so they helped to shape a narrative that was based on their own experience. And the people who are very often just working class and have access to the same cultural resources to express themselves in what we might think about the, as the economic or geographical margins. So I think part of it has to do with class, has to do with, I think, a lot of self-perpetuating stories about what it means to be Franco-American in New England. So there are a few contributing factors, 
But I think that increasingly, um, in recent years, we've complicated that story and understood that Franco-Americans are really not a monolithic population by any means. Maybe you could enlighten us as to which cities you would consider to be lesser known and likely appear in your series. Sure. Well, I haven't gone to this town yet in my series, but for me, the kind of exhibit A of this entire narrative is a place I lived in for three years when I was in New Hampshire, uh, a little town called Newmarket. Newmarket, New Hampshire, which is about, oh, 50 minutes or so maybe from Manchester, a little closer to the seacoast. And Newmarket is what we might call a mini mill town. It had a national parish. It had factories. And I was always astounded as I'd walk around, I'd see French names everywhere. And not to be morbid, but not just in cemeteries, right? (laughs) Street names and businesses and people who are active in their community. So to me, Newmarket really represented this unknown story. We don't really hear about these mini mill towns as I think we could or should. So Newmarket is one, I think, great example. Um, I should also mention Berlin in northern New Hampshire. So that was at some point, at one point, the third largest French-speaking city in New Hampshire after Manchester and Nashua. So that's really significant. And I've written about Berlin for my, my blog. And consistently, month after month, it's the highest viewed post or series on my blog. And I think that that type of local story, local narrative feeds into a sense that, you know, our stories are worthwhile, that, you know, beyond the landscape of places like Manchester, which are important sites and should be studied, there are other stories that tend to complicate our narrative. So Berlin is one. Um, I think we might get to this perhaps in the course of this conversation, but so many sites in Vermont as well, in upstate New York, um, I'm thinking of like Malone or Ogdensburg, New York, which to people from outside the region might not mean a whole lot, but these were other sites where a large proportion of the local population was French speaking at some point. So it's important to enhance their significance in the overall story we're, we're sharing here. And do you think that, and before we actually do move a little bit and travel together to uh, Vermont, at least through audio, unfortunately, wouldn't be a good idea to travel right now. What is the reception of sort of the majority cities, the the more well-known cities to these lesser known stories? Have you encountered some reactions from people who are from maybe, say, Lewiston or even across the border in Canada? That's a great question. Uh, For the most part, I find that Franco-Americans are overwhelmingly supportive of the work I've been trying to do to enhance some of these stories. Um, I don't think that by talking about Barrie, Vermont, or Rumford, or Skowhegan in Maine, we're taking anything away from Lewiston or Manchester, some of these other big cities on whose history a lot of great work has been done. So I'm decentering the narrative to an extent, but um, for the most part, people have been supportive. And we still have a lot of great scholars in the field who are working on Manchester and Woonsocket. Um, I know that recently you had Calvin Fox and Rob Gumlaw on your, your show about who are talking about Woonsocket. So that story is still being told. And I'm grateful to, to, to people like those for, for sharing their story. But um, I think there's just an opportunity to build upon that conversation and to perhaps make comparisons between what was happening in Fall River and say Ogdensburg. So I think we're just enriching it. 
And I don't think I'm really taking anything away from what is currently being told in a sense. Indeed. And so let's journey a little bit. Uh, I see that due to the closure of the University of Vermont, you know, very much like a lot of the universities in the United States right now with all the closures and wonderful lectures we would have had this spring, um, you were going to give a a lecture, The Other Franco-Americans Tracing French-Canadian Settlement in Vermont from 1830 to 1930. And it was moved to an electronic format. Um, but I felt that the listeners would be fairly interested in this topic. Would you be able to give us a glimpse into what the French-Canadian settlement in Vermont was like? Sure, I'm happy to share a, a sneak peek, if you will. Um, definitely. So I think what's especially interesting about Vermont is just how complex the state actually is economically um, and how much it was for French-Canadians. So economically, we start seeing French-Canadians move up the Richelieu and Yamaska watersheds. These are important rivers in southern Quebec. And slowly encroaching, if you will, maybe not the right term, but pushing into northern Vermont in uh, the early 19th century. This starts as early as the 1810s. I found really interesting evidence about uh, families moving to the shores of Lake Champlain from the Montreal region as early as really the heels of the War of 1812. So this story begins early, and although initially they're really pushing what we call in French the écumen, the populated area that's dominated by French-Canadian culture, ultimately um, it's not just confined to agriculture. So we find French-Canadians working on the docks in Burlington on Lake Champlain, moving as far up as Whitehall at the southern tip of Lake Champlain, um, and that's on the New York side, but it's all along Lake Champlain, We have farmers in the north. We have quarry workers from marble quarries in Rutland. And there, French Canadians get into tussles with the Irish. And I push my story into Barry, Vermont, as well, where we have granite quarries. And French Canadians work there as well. And eventually, you have the railway, which again opens up a whole new field of opportunities. So, on the whole, this is a story that starts very early. And everywhere you look, you see a different landscape of French-Canadian life, all based on economics and sometimes on how people interact with their overwhelmingly um, Anglo-Saxon environment as well. So this is tremendously fascinating. Um, And I can share a few really interesting tidbits as well that that I'm planning to to share. Oh, we'd love to hear that. Sure. Um, so one person I've really been working on who comes at the tail end of that period, that century that's advertised, um, for my talk. And that figure has the grandiose name of Joseph de Nonville Bachin and J.D. Bachin, as I call him, um, often we only see him under his initials. He's a guy who moves in the early 20th century to Vermont and he doesn't move to Winooski, which is a big textile manufacturing center in Vermont, he moves to the other side of the state, uh, St. Johnsbury, which is a big railway hub. And he has the benefit of being middle class. His father was mayor of Coaticook. He was mayor of Sherbrooke as well. So this is a guy who comes from a pretty prestigious uh, pedigree uh, from the perspective of the Eastern townships. And he builds a career as a dentist And in 1920, he runs for office. Um, I won't say too much about this. This is kind of the meat of my talk, but it's a really fascinating campaign. And ultimately, it's a losing campaign, but 
he becomes better known outside of his own French-Canadian community. And in time, he also wins the good graces of the governor. Uh, that's in the 1930s, and that's Governor Aiken. And he'll be an advisor to Governor Aiken, especially on matters of international relations from the perspective of the Vermont government. So that mostly means dealing with Quebec, Quebec trade, Quebec migrations, Quebec tourism, um, and the job creation that takes place as a result of those exchanges. And that will be an opportunity for Bachin, for this dentist, to promote French Canadian culture in Vermont. Now, again, this isn't happening, you know, yesterday or a few decades ago. This is starting in the 1930s. And it, it's one of those cases where suddenly as we look at his efforts, it puts on a whole new spin on efforts to preserve French Canadian culture and to attain some level of prestige of vis visibility for Franco-Americans before the quote-unquote revival of the 1970s. So he's an interesting figure. I also talk a little bit about um, a spelling bee, a spelling bee that takes place right after the First World War where the winner, and this is a town-wide uh, spelling bee that takes place in Newport uh, in northern Vermont, and it's obviously taking place in the English language, and ultimately it's the Franco-American who wins the spelling bee. Um, so I draw a few conclusions from that, um, especially in terms of how the press handled a Franco-American winning against a bunch of Yankee Vermonters on their own ground. Um, <laughs> so I explored that a little bit, and... Uh, I even somehow found out um, who this figure was, who's now long past. But learning a little bit about his background helps to helps us understand just how complex uh, the landscape of Northern Vermont culturally and socially actually is in the 1920s. So a lot of the research that you're doing, I imagine, is archival materials, is it not? Maybe letters and newspapers. Could you tell the listeners a little bit about that as well? Sure. I wish I could track down or you know, find more information about uh, Bachin. And I think that might require a trip to Montpelier. Um, in Vermont to State Archives, I don't know if, you know, right now I haven't tracked down any descendants who might have uh, a shoebox full of letters or anything like that. So I'll have to keep digging. But um, you know, once this whole situation, to put it euphemistically, has passed, right. I'll certainly be uh, traveling a lot more. But we still have a lot of evidence about some of these individuals in contemporary newspapers. And it's led me to develop this idea of back page Americans. Back page Americans, by which I mean, as you look at some of these newspapers from the time period, sure on the front page is gonna be big political events or maybe scandalous events from the lesser known. And as you keep moving through, you'll eventually come across more and more French names or just ethnic names, so to speak, um, as you head towards the back pages of the newspaper. And oftentimes these people are not explicitly identified as French Canadians. So using um, kind of a typical search engine or search mode to go through some of these papers doesn't really suffice. It doesn't do justice to the amount of French names, to Quebec connections, to their travels across the international boundary. So we really have to go through all these issues, in a sense, one by one, unless you have a really interesting family or family name that you're pursuing. Um, it takes a lot of work and a lot of time, but just looking at these back page Americans, as I call them, you do glean a lot of information about their movements, what kind of culture 
uh, they built up in the in the U.S. and in Vermont specifically. So there's still a lot to be gleaned and very little that's really been done with some of these old newspapers up to this point. So I still have a lot of work ahead of myself here and hopefully a lot of people will be inspired to join in as well. That's a wonderful undertaking you're doing. I'm sure that everyone listening is very excited to engage with your topics and engage especially with that speech, the, the electronic uh, um, presentation you'll be giving with uh, the University of Vermont. Uh, Maybe uh, at the end of the uh, conversation today, you could tell the listeners a little bit of how to find that online. But I, I kind of wanted to, you know, ask a question here that is sort of related to the idea of these back page Americans. I really love that term. In your opinion, as a historian, what direction do you think other historians should take in order to include these important stories alongside better known ones? You know, because it even back in the day, they were relegated to the footnotes, so to speak. And so how do we bring voices to the fore, bring these voices in particular to the fore and, and allow them to voice themselves alongside more majority, larger, and more well-known stories? Yeah, thank you for that question. I think it, it's going to take a lot of work. And thankfully, I'm not the only one. As I mentioned, I'm building upon the work of a lot of other people um, who are either gone or still active. So I think one important kind of conceptual thing we need to keep in mind is that Franco-Americans, as you well know, are not monolithic. Um, you know, looking at Franco-Americans in Michigan is not the same as looking at Franco-Americans in Connecticut, for instance, or a bunch of other places. Exactly. So, yeah, so we need to understand that this is not a monolithic population. And it's something we know, I think, instinctively but that hasn't really broken through in a lot of the big books in the field. So we need to, to, to break away from these normative categories. Um, and there was a time as, again, some of your, um, your listeners will know that there was a time when if you were going to call yourself Franco-American, well, you had to be Catholic. You had to have a French name. Uh, you had to um, be French speaking. You had to live in the shadows of smokestacks. And luckily, in the last few decades, just because the landscape of Franco-America has changed so much, we really have broken through some of these categories, and we no longer make the same assumptions. But maybe we do to an extent about our historical characters more so than who we are ourselves. So I think that transforming that language about what a Franco-American is enables us to start looking at different populations that don't fit an easy mold. So that's part of it. And I think the other side of that equation is to inspire people to, to share their stories. Um, people who might not be teachers or academics or professional researchers, um, inspire people to kind of come out and for them to understand and appreciate that their stories matter, that their stories are worthwhile, that they're compelling, interesting, and help us tell a brand new story about what being Franco-American actually means. So if we can inspire people to share their stories, and it might be on blogs, it might be you know, on social media, it might be in a local newspaper, then it helps us bring some of these stories together and again, enrich what we think we know about Franco-Americans. And I think that's why um, some of my posts on Franco-Americans on my blogs on those quote unquote other Franco-Americans um, get so many views. It's people who feel as though finally they're being heard, they're being represented. 
Um, and hopefully it's not a one-way street. I just, I'm obviously not interested in just handing down knowledge. This is not my knowledge. I want people to feed into the conversation and feel comfortable doing so, um, even if they might not have access to archives or might not have the time or desire to engage with archives, then maybe they can share their oral history um, and communicate with other people around them or with scholars uh, what their experience or their family's experience has been. So if we can inspire people to come forward and change kind of how we view Franco-Americans as whole, I think we'll be on the right track in terms of building something new and really as exciting as what's come before. I think you speak a lot to what this podcast is even trying to do is to, you know, explore these stories, to voice them and to share them. And I'm very grateful that you were able to share your own research today with us. I know that the more we build uh, these stories and the more that we share these stories with the larger community in the world, you know, not just in North America, but everywhere, that uh, these stories will be better known and people will be interested in them. And hopefully the research and the, and the knowledge about them will just grow and grow. I think that that's where we're, we're headed. And at least with social media and a lot of historians and researchers who are on social media and sharing with one another, I see that happening fairly quickly. Yeah, absolutely. I agree entirely. This is, as I think some of your other guests have pointed out, this is a wonderful and exciting time to be engaged in the field of Franco-American studies, Franco-American research, um, all these new cultural celebrations that are popping up. Uh, Poutine Fest in New Hampshire is one great example that's come up in the last few years. So between all these efforts, I think that we're really on the right track. And um, as you know, your podcast is kind of showing, we have these new means of communicating, of sharing, and I think we're all the better for it. Again, thank you so much. And now I know what the listeners are thinking. How can they tune in to see that lecture through the University of Vermont? Is there going to be a link posted or is that to be determined? There will be a link. And I noticed that the most recent third Thursday lecture uh, presented at UVM was live streamed on Facebook. So I suspect that um, this will be the case as well. I think the logistics are still kind of in the works. But one thing that I would encourage listeners to do is to go to the website of the Vermont Historical Society. So they can simply Google that, get to the website of the Historical Society, and check out events. And more details will be posted, as well as the time. I doubt there will be any change. Um, and that, of course, is barring you know, unforeseen circumstances concerning travel. I'm still in Nova Scotia, but I'm really hoping that we can make this happen uh, through some weird arrangement of technology will make it happen. So I'd say stay tuned and I'll post more information on my blog and on social media as well. Excellent. And just so the listeners can be reminded, what is your blog again? Yes, thank you. It's Query the Past, Q-U-E-R-Y-T-H-E-P-A-S-T dot com. Uh, they can also Google my name with history or Franco-Americans and it should leave them straight, straight there. So creedthepast.com and I'll be more than happy to see their comments. Um, feel free to reach out for those of you who might have wonderful stories to share, um, who might have, you know, who might be taking issue even with whatever <laughs> I might be uh, saying here. Uh, I'd love to hear from you and have that conversation. Uh, it's always a pleasure to engage with scholars, but also simply people who are interested in the subject matter and to have those discussions. So I'm grateful to you, Claire Marie, for providing this opportunity and look to look forward to many more enriching conversations. 
As do I, yes. Thank you so very much. And again, this was Patrick Lacroix. Please look him up online. He's also very active on Twitter. That's how I first engaged with him. So uh, do keep in touch. And again, to all of my listeners who support the North American Francophone Podcast, thank you for tuning in to another episode. I'm sure that many of you who are listening right now are more or less self-isolating and staying at home, but I'd also like to extend my thanks once again to those of you who are on the front lines of battling COVID-19 and maybe tuning in as you go to work and return home. You really are helping all of us in this pandemic, this world crisis, and I hope that you stay healthy, strong, and of course, inquisitive as we move forward together as a world community and stay safe and always excited to learn more. Thank you again, and please keep in touch. I look forward to more episodes in the coming weeks.